Good morning. I'm so glad you're here today and we have an opportunity to be in God's Word together in the Wednesdays in the Word. We're in the midst of an extended study of the book of Romans, verse by verse, working our way through unfolding that particular epistle. We're in the fourth chapter now, and today I want to pick up our reading in verse 9 of chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose of it was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and then also to make him the father of the circumcised, who were not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Well, if you've been with me for a while, uh, the context of our verses today we're layering on chapters 1 to 3 in which God has made very, very clear the fact that everybody needs the gospel, that it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And the reason that everybody needs it is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which is not merely a statement that none of us are perfect, but it's a statement that it matters that we're not. Because relationship with God and continuing relationship with God requires that we are holy people. Sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy and righteous and just God, even though his love is reaching out to us. Something has to be done to solve the sin problem, to atone, so to speak, for our failure. But Ephesians 2 told us there's nothing we can do to atone for it. And as a result, all of us are helpless and hopeless and without God in this world. And as Hebrews 2 puts it, facing the inevitable reality not only of death, but to appear in judgment before God. <laughs> Unless God did something, uh, that would be the dismal reality for everyone who has ever lived. But God, in fact, did something. And as we saw in those chapters, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world, the, the God-man, the Word made flesh to dwell among us, who gave his life willingly to pay that penalty we couldn't pay, to create a bridge we couldn't create, and provide a way for us to be declared righteous in God's eyes, despite the reality of being sinners. Chapter 4, building on all of that truth, began by talking to us about this wonder of finding credited righteousness before God the wonder that God promises to those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he credits to us, covers us with the perfect life of Christ, takes our sin and places it on him. The two examples that the chapter 4 begins with is the example of King David and the example of the patriarch Abraham. And the question that's posed in the beginning of this chapter is, how were these saints of the Old Testament saved. What 
put them in the place where they would be accepted by God and have a future and a hope instead of facing judgment. And in verse 3 of this fourth chapter, we encounter this great challenge. What does the scripture say? <laughs> Listen, there is our marching order. The only place we find a real answer, a true answer to any ultimate question, any eternal question, is in the scriptures. There's no place else to turn. You don't turn to some inner sense about things. You don't turn to some inner hunch. And you certainly don't turn to what people say. The only place you can turn is to find out what God has said. And the scriptures are his God-breathed word. That's where we find what God has said. So what do the scriptures say about these things? And we discovered that what the scripture says about these things is that as far as Abraham was concerned, he was made right before God, credited righteous, because he trusted God's promised provisions. Not because he did anything, but because he trusted and rested in what God's promise was to him. And then King David, as we discovered, in a very similar way, was credited righteous before God, even though he was very aware of his sin. He was credited righteous by God because he trusted God's promise that not only in the temporary sense of the Old Testament sacrifices, but that ultimately God would send that perfect final sacrifice for sin, which we understand to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the precious Lamb of God who shed his blood to provide a solution to the sins of the world. So both Abraham and David become confirmations of the point developed here in the book of Romans, that the only hope for us is credited righteousness. And the only way for credited righteousness is to trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, to take God's word seriously and rest our lives and future upon its truth. Now, today, as we continue on in our study, we're encountering more about Abraham and this idea of the credited righteousness that he found and that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 9 to 11, we encounter this issue. Was Abraham made right before God because of a religious right? And the religious right in question is the right of circumcision. Was Abraham made right before God because he was circumcised? Or was he made right before God unrelated to the circumcision in his life? Was the blessing of justification, credited righteousness before God, tied to Abraham's faith, or was it tied to a religious ritual, a religious ceremony? And it's a critical question. If you've been with me for a while, you remember back in chapter 2, we were encountering that issue of religious rights and how God was demonstrating that religious rights can't solve our sin problem. And therefore, even those that undertake them will not find a solution to their sin accountability before God. The right issue emerges again. What about the right of circumcision? What was the role of circumcision in Abraham's life? Was it circumcision that saved him? In the early church, this issue of ritual, religious rite or ceremony, and its connection to God's grace and dispensing of God's grace was a real live issue. And it had to be addressed, and in fact, in a very extended way, 
it was addressed as related to circumcision in Acts chapter 15 at what's called the Great Jerusalem Council. But underlying that circumcision argument and and contention was the broader question of religious ceremony in general. How does God's grace get dispensed to us? How can we find ourselves with righteousness declared before God? Is it based on a religious ceremony or is it based on our, our objective repentance and faith in the gospel? Circumcision was particularly confusing in the early church. You know, many today are in the same trap that many of the early Jews and early believers in the church were in. And because of the Jewish culture, the Jews took looked at this rite of circumcision as being critical to, to uh, finding right standing with God. And many people today look at certain religious rites, certain sacraments as necessary in order to be made right with God, in order to have promise for the future. Circumcision was particularly confusing in the early church because many Jews wrongly, not biblically, but wrongly, concluded that circumcision is what made them a Jew. And they thought wrongly as a result of that, that circumcision was necessary for any of the Gentiles who would place their faith or wanted to place their faith in what Jesus Christ had done for the cross. Circumcision was necessary for them too, because they really couldn't become a, quote, Christian unless they became a Jew. And the two wove themselves together. And if you've made a mistake about what makes you a Jew, uh, and in their case, they were believing it was this this circumcision, this uh, religious ceremony and rite, uh, you would then carry it into dealing with the Gentiles. They were convinced, and this group, by the way, was called the Judaizers, uh, this group was convinced that circumcision was needed to be saved. You had to become a Jew first, then a believer. That Christianity was not separate from Judaism, it was a fulfillment. Now, in one sense, they were partially correct, because, of course, it was through the Jews that the Messiah came. But they were totally incorrect in believing that one had to step back and go through the Old Testament strategies and become a formal Jew in order to become a believer. (laughs) The bottom line is their conviction was, there is no such thing as credited righteousness, unless you've gone through this sacrament, this religious ritual, which in their case turned out to be the ritual of circumcision. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Acts chapter 15 developed for us that in point of fact, the church under direction of the Holy Spirit, God's purpose and plan, had to conclusively rule against that idea. And so in Acts chapter 15, that issue was rooted out And it was clear what the scripture says. Remember verse 3 of the fourth chapter? What does the scripture say? Therefore, in Acts 15, it became very clear what the scripture said, what God had said about this, that the issue of religious ritual was unrelated to the issue of salvation and justification before God. Circumcision was not necessary. And in fact, The message went out into all of the church as it was now expanding through the missionary journeys of Paul and others that no, it's repentance and faith in the gospel, that message that is the power of God unto salvation. It's faith in that, that saves someone, not some religious sacrament, some religious ritual that somebody would go through. Well, 
despite the decision of Acts chapter 15. What we discover as you continue to read through the book of Acts, and certainly as you read through the epistles, the Judaizers didn't go away. There were those who rejected what Acts 15 told us, what the scriptures said, and continued to try to influence in the early church this idea of ritual necessary, get people circumcised, align with the Old Testament laws. While that eventually died away, the concept behind it didn't, and the concept continued to plague the church throughout the centuries, and sadly, it is true today, in the 21st century, that there are those that believe that to be made right with God, or to stay right with God, one must receive a sacrament of some sort, go through a religious ritual of some sort, because God was determined he would only show his grace to us through those sacraments, through those religious rituals. And for such people, I come before them and before you who are listening, and I say, what does Acts, or what does Romans chapter 4 verse 3, verse 3 say? What does the scripture say? <laughs> Let's see what the scripture says. The issue is not, <clears throat> what does the church say, whatever you think the church is, and the issue is not, what is the uh, majority opinion about such things among men and women? Uh, no, no, the issue is, what does the scripture say? Let's examine what the scripture says. And what does the scripture say about this? Well, as we saw in these verses I read to you, verses 9 to 11, Abraham's circumcision, far from being the reason he was credited righteous before God, actually occurred lot later than the circumcision, it's than the belief in the crediting of righteousness. Abraham's circumcision is presented here to be merely a sign of the reality that existed in his life. And by the way, that's the same in the New Testament sense of baptism or the Lord's Supper. They remind us they are a sign of a reality. We don't gain the reality because of baptism or the Lord's Supper. They're both signs, pictures of a reality that we received a different way. The right, the religious, that's the reason I use the word ordinance and align with the group that does to describe baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. This, these ordinances, not these sacraments, are merely signs, pictures, uh, illustrations of a truth gained another way. They are not the means by which we gain that truth. They are not the means by which God's grace is dispensed to us. No, God's grace is dispensed to us through Christ by faith. I am not a sacramentalist, as you can see. Uh, I don't question the motive of people, but the issue is not motive. The issue is, what does the scripture say? <laughs> Let's build our beliefs. Let's build our hopes around what God has chosen to reveal not what men have reasoned. What does the scripture say about this issue? In Abraham's case, he had already been credited righteous by God, justified, to use that terminology, long before the act of circumcision took place in his life. In fact, it was 14 years later, after the declaration that of credited righteousness, of salvation, in that sense, for Abraham, that circumcision occurred. 
the movement from Genesis chapter 15 to Genesis chapter 17. Obviously, the religious rite of circumcision was not necessary for Abraham's salvation. It, the circumcision served a number of purposes, but it was merely a sign, a, an illustration, an object lesson of a reality and truth that was gained another way. And of course, that very example is what in Acts chapter 15, and you can go read that on your own, uh, the Jerusalem Council came to in drawing its conclusion about this great question. <laughs> so the question initially, was Abraham made right by some religious rite or sacrament? And the answer is no. He was made right before God on the basis of taking God's word seriously and resting in the promise of God. He was credited righteousness, he was credited with righteousness by faith. The same thing is true of the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. We receive its benefit not by some religious activity, not by some religious rite or sacrament, but we receive its benefit of credited righteousness on the basis of repentance and faith in the message that is seen in the gospel message of the cross. Do you see the distinction? I hope you do. Well, continuing on in these verses that I read to you, uh, the issue builds on this issue of circumcision with this question. Who is qualified to be called a child of Abraham? And of course, that phrase was an important phrase because it was a phrase that distinctively marked out those who, as the children of Abraham, were really the children of God, uh, God's people. And uh, so the question is, who is qualified to be called a child of God? <laughs> as verse 13 uh, picks up on that on that message uh, in verse I'm sorry, verse 11. Uh, the purpose was to make him a father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but also walked in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. Uh, the question: Who's qualified to have this label of the child of Abraham? Abraham's children. The Jews saw themselves as having exclusive right to that label. It was a very important question to the early church, which had such a strong mixture of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. In fact, at the beginning, only Jewish believers. Uh, it was a very important question to that group. Who has the right to be called the children of Abraham? The Jews, in a way that the Gentiles at first didn't understand, they recognized that being called Abraham's child in, brought with it an inheritance. It brought with it the right to be part of that inherited promised kingdom that would come. The, the great promises that were made to Abraham of both a nation and also the eventual uh, expansion of the people who were his children to number like the stars of the heavens. They understood some of that, and therefore they saw, listen, to be called this is important. That's a, that's a necessary truth, a, a birthright we don't want to abandon. But they, saw, they thought that that particular title was limited only to them. And they saw how one became the Jew was through circumcision, through ethnicity, 
and through nationality. And, of course, what God was showing here, back in the second chapter, he said the one who's a Jew is not the one who's one outwardly by some physical act like circumcision or ethnically, but the one who's been circumcised in the heart. In other words, if something has happened as a result of faith, that's what makes a true Jew, not only an ethnic Jew. Well, at any rate, the Jews, understanding and seeing this, this importance of being called Abraham's children, were furious with the Lord Jesus Christ when he called their view into question, which he did throughout the Gospels. He made it plain that not all ethnic circumcised Jews were in fact Jews in the sight of God. Notice how back in the second chapter of Romans he put it in verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision an outward and physical thing, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In John chapter 8, Jesus, confronting the religious leaders of his day and the Jews who were with them, says it this way, starting in verse 33 of John 8. They answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There's the issue of Romans, isn't it? Uh, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you don't do what I've heard. You do not do what you have heard from your father. They answered, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did, which were what? It wasn't circumcision. It was faith in the promises of God, the God-breathed promises. Well, who's qualified to have the label, the child of Abraham, Abraham's children? And the answer to that is not an answer of ethnicity. It is not an answer of nationality. <clears throat> and it is certainly not an answer of religious ritual or sacrament. It is an answer of faith. Those who place their faith in the promise of God inherit the great promise of now being called children of Abraham. As these passages put it, the true children of Abraham include all people who believe in Jesus Christ. As verse 11 says, he's the father of all who believe, Jews and Gentiles, people who walk in the footsteps of faith. Some of the ethnic Jews also place their faith in the gospel, and therefore they, in a very real sense, could be called children of Abraham. Some of the Gentiles, hearing the gospel, place their faith in that gospel, and therefore they, even without any religious circumcision or other sacrament, could also be called children of Abraham. Many Jews, rejecting the gospel, many ethnic Jews, or proselytes to the Jewish faith, rejecting the gospel, actually forfeited the right to be called true Jews or true children of Abraham. And many Gentiles rejecting the gospel forfeited any right to be called the children of Abraham. <laughs> you see, to be 
given that label, and as a consequence have the inherited promises, is tied to faith, not ethnicity, and certainly not to religious sacrament or ritual. <clears throat> we become children of Abraham through faith. That is the only way. All come the same way, Jew or Gentile in background. That's the great unfolding message of the book of Romans. All come the same way. And what's that way? <laughs> As Romans 1.16 put it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. What's the way? The gospel. That message surrounding the one who claims I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So how does one find credited righteousness, justification before God? Never, ever on the basis of some religious sacrament, some religious rite. Certainly never, ever on the basis of some sort of ethnicity and national identity. Always, always on the basis of faith in the gospel. Not just faith, because faith can be focused on all kinds of things, but faith focused on the gospel. That is the way in which one inherits the promise. One is able to be declared righteous, justified before God, credited righteous. Those who are people of faith are credited righteous in the sight of God. Think how it puts it at the beginning of the book of John in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, meaning ethnicity, nor of the will of the flesh, in other words, something either you do or somebody else does on your behalf, nor of the will of man, it isn't that somebody else can decide it on your behalf. No, but we're born of God. And how is one born of God? By faith in the gospel. It makes us new creations. Do you see how the message all ties together? This is how circumcision, representing sacraments, representing religious rites, and the issue of justification work themselves out. Religious rites... Religious sacraments are not the way to be saved. Faith in the gospel, that is the way to be saved. May you on this day be resting in the right foundation, your faith in what Christ has done for you on the cross, in your determination to turn away from any other source of confidence and rest yourself wholly, eternally, in the work of Christ. Turn away, brother and sister, from any confidence in the flesh, any confidence in religious ritual, any confidence in religious ceremony, any confidence in religious sacrament. Let your confidence be in the promised righteousness and forgiveness found nowhere else but through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, join me next time as we continue further on in our study of the book of Romans. I'd love to have you with me. God bless and have a great week.